The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program, everyone. Great to have you all along. As we start night number two of this uh, first week in August, our guest tonight, John Gastel, is a distinguished professor of political communication, but he's also written some novels. And uh, one of the novels we're going to be talking about specifically tonight is called Gray Matters. And this is an interesting discussion because it basically outlines the story of a programmer, an artificial intelligent technology guy who invents software to forestall dementia in elderly patients. But in the process, he risks turning a whole generation into what the book calls glitches. We're going to find out what this is all about, but we're really going to be talking about the conflict between humanity and remaining human and the advances in these technologies, whether it's implantable technology, whether it's artificial intelligence, or anything similar to that. We often find that science fiction can do one of two things, and sometimes it does both. It can predict the future, but it can also warn us of things to come. And we'll talk about that concept as well. So it'll be a great discussion tonight with John Gasta. Looking forward to this. Uh, there's not really a whole lot more to talk about. I do want to mention something interesting, though. I And I don't know if you've noticed this as well. There seems to be a flood of TV commercials using paranormal themes. Have you seen that? Uh, I just happened to, earlier today, be watching a news program briefly, and I caught a uh, progressive insurance. You know, Flo, isn't that the name of the of the spokesperson, Flo? Uh, and, and Flo is sitting down talking to a Bigfoot. And when she says, uh, thank you for, for talking to me, Mr. Bigfoot, and she he, he says, what did you call me? And she says, Bigfoot. He goes, my name is Danny or something like that. Um, but just the fact they use a Bigfoot creature in that commercial I find interesting. And I saw uh, something else recently where they were using aliens. There's a lot of this stuff going on in popular culture, which I, which makes it very, very curious to me. If maybe there's an, an additional change in attitude. Oh, so you're saying it's Daryl, not Danny. Okay. Maybe there's, a, there's an additional warming up to these ideas in, in uh, popular culture and also just in general thought. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I, I noticed the thing. I said, I gotta, I've got to say something on the program tonight about that because I find it interesting. Anyway, once again, thank you to everyone for being here. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll bring our guest in. We're talking with John Gastel. In fact, Dr. John Gastel tonight, distinguished professor of political communication. And we're going to be talking about his new novel. It's a science fiction novel, and it's called Gray Matters. That's tonight's program on Beyond Reality. Don't go away. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Dr. John Gastel will be our guest. He's a distinguished professor of political communication, and we're going to talk about um, his new novel. It's called Gray Matters, plus a bunch of other things. Really, the concept here is technology 
and humanity and how these two things can sometimes work together in a symbiotic way, but they can also sometimes work against. And what does our future hold? Which of those two scenarios? John, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you with us tonight. JV, I'm excited to be on the show, but I'm also excited to follow BG's bumper music. That's a phrase I didn't know would ever be associated with me, and truly, I am ridiculously excited. Does that feel good? Does it feel good to follow the BGs like that? Uh, I would say so good in a high falsetto, but <laughs> bad things could happen. Oh, that's awesome. If I tried. That is awesome. Well, I'm, I'm, as my listeners know, I like two things, Bee Gees and Beatles, and I play a lot of them for bumper music, so you might hear some more as the night goes on. Anyway, welcome to the program. It's great to have you. And, um, you know, I was, I was reading through uh, your materials and getting to know you a little bit since this is the first time you've been on the program. And one of the things that fascinates me before we get into talking about your books and the concepts included in the books uh, is your upbringing. I, I noted that both of your parents ran for Congress at one point. Yeah, I made them a bumper sticker that they, they wouldn't put on their car, which said, we're Democrats and we run for Congress. <laughs> <laughs> they thought it sounded a little arrogant. I thought it was funny. I think it's funny, too. Did you have, can you point, look back and point to anything that may have uh, changed your path in life because your parents were involved politically like that? Well, absolutely. Um, my my whole family was very political. Uh, we argued uh, sometimes past the point of reason at the dinner table, if there was even dinner. Um, we were just kind of a crazy wild bunch, and that definitely made me kind of argumentative. But at the same time, I was raised Quaker, actually. Uh, you know, oh, wow. we had a couple Quaker presidents, uh, Nixon and Hoover. So we're kind of 0 for 2 on that one. But, but, um, but Quakers uh, practice silent worship um, and emphasize trying to build consensus. So I, I had myself, I was pulled in two directions, right? Argue, argue, and then, but try to find consensus. And that's kind of worked out in my work in that I'm really interested in how people arrive at more informed judgments and, and make kind of thoughtful decisions in their life. And Gray Matters is partly about Ooh, things that could cause us to do the opposite. You um, obviously took a, uh, I guess we'll call it an adjunct to a political path, because I don't know if you've been active as a political candidate ever, but I know that in your professional career, you talk a lot about politics. You write a lot about politics. Did you avoid the candidacy stuff? Was that something that didn't interest you? Uh, you know, I, I would have failed a personality <laughs> test for candidates. I actually ran campaigns, and I saw firsthand what a good candidate is, and I, I just can't do that. I just can't keep names and faces straight. And, uh, you know, a really good candidate, I, I mean, a lot of people who serve in public office are, are actually really well-intentioned, earnest, good people. Um, and uh, they have tremendous uh, empathy and can remember the details about people they meet. And that is not me. So I'm happy to work for candidates, um, and I'm happy to support candidates that I believe in, but uh, I, I would make a terrible one. Yeah, I am. Um, I tried the. Well, I actually was successful as a candidate for a couple of terms in my county legislature, and I um, I, I became vice chairman of the county legislature, the board, and uh, I, I enjoyed doing the work. But what I didn't enjoy was I didn't like my fellow politicians who felt like they just had to say the right thing to the right people to be liked. And that's oh, they not, were posturing, right? Yeah, that's not my personality. I say what I think, and it, you know, and ultimately in, in a tough election, I ended up losing my seat probably because I was too honest, but I can't do it any other way. 
You know, that's why my mom uh, was knocked off the school board. Is she was on? A, she filled out a questionnaire without thinking twice about it, and then uh, it, it was about abortion, which had really nothing to do with the school board. Yeah. But that's what uh, got her knocked off. Um, so yeah, you know, being an honest politician should be something you're rewarded for. We should be rewarding politicians for being deliberative, right? For being yes. thoughtful and and challenging us. Um, but again, uh, uh, that's not the pattern that we're more accustomed to seeing. There's nothing more frustrating to me right now. And boy, we are in frustrating times for a lot of reasons. But there's nothing more frustrating to me than to see politicians of either side of the aisle unwilling to sit down and have an honest discussion about anything. Now, maybe they're doing it behind closed doors. I don't know. But certainly in front of the microphones, that's not what they're doing. Well, I... Uh, we're, we're getting a little far afield here, but I, hey, it's my field, so if you want to go there, um, th- th- there is research on uh, the uh, willingness of uh, elected officials to, to bargain and compromise and negotiate, even behind closed doors, and, and it is just not happening as much as it used to in the United States. Some of that's for the better, right? Some of that was, you know, smoke-filled rooms kind of deals sure. that we can never really find out what happened, but, but some of it was just honest-to-goodness compromise. Um, taking two different, you know, political philosophies and trying to craft a policy they could both agree on. Um, again, I, I don't mean to pull it back to the novel too hard, but but gray matters really is about how predictable, in some ways, people have become and how comfortable we are with that, right? And and maybe what you're saying is, I, I don't know that I want my elected officials to be so predictable. I want them to maybe surprise me sometimes and challenge me. Well, I'm going to say one more thing about politics, and then we'll take this conversation. Oh, no, we can go right back there. Trust <laughs> me. I, I'm, I, that's my comfort zone. I, um, I actually appreciate gridlock, and I, I actually appreciate some of the high hurdles that are necessary to get major legislation passed. I think that's an important part of our process. Um, not always. Sometimes we need to get things done, and it needs to be done quickly. And I think we're in, at a point where that might be the case as well. Um, but I think there's some wisdom in making things a little bit difficult to get done. Well, how about this? Uh, there's, a, there's a book out called Slow Democracy, which emphasizes that d- d- democracy is sometimes really healthy when it, when it slows down, when you take time to sort of think through the problem and hear other points of view and, and maybe consider that you don't have all the facts before you make a decision. Um, and so, I, I, you know, it doesn't have to be gridlock exactly, just, just slowing down, deliberating, right? Juries can take all the time they need. That's, that's a model of deliberation that... You know, we should follow in our legislature. It doesn't mean that you just endlessly dither. It means that you keep trying to, you know, inspect the problem, consider other solutions until you're ready to make a a good decision. Um, I noted that um, your newest book, Gray Matters, which we're going to spend a great deal of time talking about tonight, is a novel. But the themes in it are very, very important and uh, very poignant and very timely, in fact. However, much of your work prior to that, uh, was nonfiction. Uh, what made you make the All leap? of it. All of I mean, it this was. is my debut novel. I, I, I started writing Gray Matters almost 10 years ago, um, and uh, <laughs> it is scary how much of it has come to pass. I don't want to you know, have any spoilers, but I, I put a preface in there from a colleague in Australia who read it, uh, gosh, eight years ago, just so she could vouch for the fact that yeah, no, this, he wrote about this stuff before it happened, but there's more stuff in there that hasn't happened yet. And she's like, <laughs> let's read it and make sure those things don't happen, too, because they're all bad. You um, started this 10 years ago. However, 
it seems as though you could have started it yesterday, given the the ideas and the themes and the and the information that you include to support those ideas and themes. What what did you see ten years ago that made you start writing this particular book? Well, there were a couple things going on here. Well, you and I have been talking about politics, so I'll start there. Uh, when Sarah Palin got the nomination for the vice presidency, it, it was a real shock to me. Now, you already heard I'm a Democrat. I, I you know, I have, an, I have a political point of view and a, a political party. Not everybody supports a political party, but, uh, you know, my parents were Democrats, and that's how most people become Republicans or Democrats sure. or independents. Um, but it really shocked me. I thought, Sarah Palin? Are, really? This is, you know, this is who the Republicans think is the the best prospect for a vice president, um, and um, when she touted her experience as a mayor and I, and then governor, obviously, of Alaska. But I, I just thought, what would the Democrats do if our vice presidential nominee wasn't the, the sharpest knife in the block, right? And I started to noodle around with that. I remember sitting uh, in, a, in a hotel with a couple friends and saying, who would, who would scare us? Like, who, who's, and we came up with kind of a, a sort of a new age kind of character who has this sort of loose philosophy that's kind of untethered from reality, uh, but is very popular, very charismatic, right? Um, and I, 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 I came up with a guy, Mahatma Golden, in the novel Gray Matters, who is uh, kind of a, has a philosophy all his own, let's say, uh, about um, our future selves. His, his best-selling book is Be There Then, about connecting with your future self. Um, and uh, he, gets, he winds up being the vice president through an odd little circumstance. Um, it, it turns out that if the vice president dies, uh, vice presidential candidate, I should say, dies late in an electoral cycle, it's actually not up to the presidential candidate who the new VP is. It's oh, really? up to, in this case, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. And that's exactly what happens in gray matters. Um, and they pick this guy because, well, he kind of shores up a weakness that the candidate has um, and probably secures the, uh, the uh, successful election of the president. But she doesn't necessarily like this guy as her vice president. But uh, that sounds a little bit like Marianne Williamson. Right when I saw yeah. her on the debate stage, I thought, "Oh my gosh!" And part of me was like, "Well, I, I don't think she's the most qualified candidate up there, um, but you know, but I kind of want her to be the VP pick because it's great for gray matters." <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But um, no, really, I mean, I, I was shocked when I saw her, and I thought, "No, that, that's exactly what I think the Democrats could wind up doing is having someone who appeals to their." sentimentalism um, and sounds maybe really thoughtful, but maybe isn't that deep when it comes to thinking about policy and politics. So there's a political component to gray matters. There's also a, uh, I guess we would call it a technological component. Um, there is a sci-fi sci component. You, all these things come together to make this story. Yeah. And the, the sci-fi component, now that's the other big thread in the story. Um, going back to my parents, um, my family has, has had a terrible experience with dementia and Alzheimer's, and uh, it took my, my grandparents and, and others. Um, but my father got dementia late in life uh, while he was suffering from Parkinson's. And that was right around when I started working on Gray Matters. And so the main character of the book is a, a social scientist, and that's kind of what I am, um, who is fascinated with big data, right, all the data we have on people. Um, and he, as his father starts to slip a little bit cognitively, he wonders, gosh, could we create assistive technology that's going to help him? 
that could maybe help him remain the person he is today, right? Just kind of freeze him in time, but let him age more gracefully, um, continuing to be the, the, the person that I know him as, using that data, right, to predict what he would do in any upcoming situation. Um, and so it was kind of a personal connection uh, into this idea of technology. Um, but then as the company goes on, it wants to scale up the product. It starts with a call center, but then realizes, you know, maybe we need to automate this. That's when things start getting a little weird. Getting a little weird? <laughs> the, whole, yeah. the whole concept of big data is a little weird to me. Um, and a little scary. I, I, but 10 years ago, was it the same? I mean, you're a bit of a visionary here, I think. Well, big data has been with us for a long time. Uh, the, the difference is the sheer scale of uh, the data now available, um, kind of the transparency of your actions, right? I mean, you used to make phone calls, and nobody knew you made phone calls. Right. Um, then you made phone calls, and everybody knew you were making them, but they didn't know where you were making them. Now we know, you know when right. you're making the call, where you're making the call, so many things. But you're not making phone calls. Now you're on Facebook, right? Now we know the text that you're producing, right? Mm -hmm. The context in which you're reacting to people. And what you're buying and when you're buying it and what else you looked at, all those things, right? And you've got devices in your home that are playing uh, the Bee Gees and the Beatles, uh, but also listening to what you're uh, saying. So we're, we're just creating such an enormous amount of data, and our co uh, computational power is incredible now. So you can crunch this data. Now, when you crunch all this data... Sometimes it produces something that's not very predictive, right? Uh, we are still weird, funky people that do things that the models can't predict. But uh, sometimes we're a little bit predictable, and maybe we're getting more predictable. So big data could be a powerful way of really not just tracking us and putting products or candidates in front of us that we might like, but maybe nudging us. And that's where gray matters kind of changes the whole game. Uh, that's where I introduced the concept of the loop as a different kind of Internet. When you encapsulate big data in the way you just did and, and, and give us, gave us those examples, one example that comes to mind, and this is probably somewhat inconsequential in the scheme of things, but I think it's, it portends bigger things or maybe things that are going on already but kind of behind the scenes and this is that concept where i know for a fact i have said something in the presence of my phone and that very thing has shown up in ads on facebook right some of that's serendipity right some of that's just the coincidence that isn't a coincidence but but some of that is straight up it depends on what you know app you have on and so on yeah. whether or not your your voice is being recorded but, yeah, some of that is just saying back to you what you said, right? I'm, I'm looking for office shelves, and uh, if I type it in or say it, it kind of doesn't matter. I'm, I'm giving that information away for free. I've already given permission, right, by clicking on the things I that I don't read. read yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, we, we, none of us read them. Um, I just I find as, as you start talking about politics and you start talking about gray matters and we, and we start – pulling all these ideas and these worlds together, I'm starting to think that if I'm not careful with my political speech around my phone, that something might not be an ad. It might be a restriction. I might not be able to access something on Facebook because I said I like a given candidate or don't like enough. You know, do you understand where I'm going with this? That part of it starts to get scary. The ad is one thing, 
But when we start talking about the ability to affect politics or the ability to affect health care or the ability to affect um, things that are banking uh, based on what you might say in the presence of your phone. I don't know if I don't know if we get that far. Or we're going to get that far in this discussion. But but, man, that stuff actually starts to uh, ring some alarm bells for me. Hey, you know, the name of your show is Beyond Reality. We can go as far as you want. <laughs> we're, we're not limited here, and we are talking about science fiction, so we're really uh, without restriction. And so, but let's go there. Let's let's absolutely go there. Let's think for a second about Facebook. Um, Facebook is the number one news source for people yep. uh, in the United States. And let's be clear about something: Facebook doesn't have news. Right. Right. Um, Facebook has links to news that was produced elsewhere, but people actually turn to Facebook to get their news. Well. Facebook isn't under any rules about what news it gives you. Uh, you know, when, when JV gets on Facebook and he's like, I'm going to just hang out here a little bit because I want to be distracted. And Facebook says, oh, well, I'm going to distract you with this news story. Um, there's all kinds of reasons the next thing in your Facebook feed might be a news story about Iran or South Korea or the presidential election. Um, and those reasons might have something to do with not only what you're interested in, because Facebook wants to keep you there, but it could have something to do with what Facebook wants. Right? When we talk about Facebook in the 2016 election and how they worked with Cambridge Analytica, um, you know, that, that was a commercial relationship that they had. But, but what about Facebook's own self-interest? Right? There's, there's no regulation that says Facebook can't act in its own interest as right. a corporation. Right. right? Well, gray matters, uh, because I have the freedom to play with reality a bit and go beyond it, as you would say, um, I imagine, okay, what if Facebook was actually blown up? I mean, MySpace is gone, right? Uh, you know, so many things that seemed like, oh, this is what the Internet's going to be. We're, we're gone in just a matter of years. Mm -hmm. And in gray matters, what I imagine is, what if artificial intelligence develops a very different way than we expect. Right now we talk about these big companies and investors like Elon Musk and so on who are trying to create artificial intelligence. The Chinese government is very much involved in this and so on. But, but what if artificial intelligence develops kind of through open source software? What if it's a bunch of small programs and little applets that each have a kind of artificial intelligence, but they start interlinking with each other in surprising and unpredictable ways? And in a way, they, they start to replace the Internet. They, ultimately, they, they become, in the novel, called something uh, called the loop because they sort of blow up the corporate Internet. What they do is they essentially hack it, the Internet itself, pull out a bunch of proprietary data, and then start churning out all kinds of powerful predictive energy and wall itself off from any company or government that won't play along. So if you want to have your own little private fiefdom, like your own little Facebook, the loop says, well, you can do that, but you're going to be irrelevant. And so everybody just kind of gives up and says, fine, you know what? This actually works better. We're, you know, everybody can make money off of this. We're all going to be fine. But the loop is now this, this loosely interconnected set of programs and so on that don't have an overriding goal, but might start behaving in a way that makes you wonder if it wants things, right? Maybe it, maybe it says to JV, hey, I've got an idea for a show for you, and it just pops up on your screen about an hour before you're going on the air, and it says, you know what, tonight's guest is um, 
is going to be fine, but who, here's who you should have gotten. And I've already sent an email to them suggesting they come on your show. Uh, I know you have a slot open in six weeks. And you're just staring at your screen going, how do you know all these things? And the more you think about it, you think, well, I guess I do know how you know these things. But that's the loop in gray matters. Is it's, it's kind of it's nosy. It's, it's nudging you. It's, it's getting in your way. But you can't help admitting it, it's kind of smart. It, when you describe the loop, um, I immediately think of the Internet of Things. And I'm not entirely sure I know what that means, but based on what sure little do, I do. Sure you do. Say what, say what you think it means, because listeners have got to understand the Internet of Things. So but let's hear, hear what you understand it to be, and that's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of what I understand. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a, it's, it's a myriad of devices, um, all independent devices, but all connecting um, using a, uh, an Internet um, the internet or maybe just Wi-Fi if it's more localized to communicate with each other and share information. Yeah. Like is that your close? Just talking to your answering machine is yeah. talking to your nest on the wall, right? right? And it's talking to the network. Is that good? Well, you know, it sure does sound good, right? I mean, one of the things that nest, which is the thermostat that uh, some people have in their home, one of the things that it promised is, Hey, you know what? You're wasting energy. I, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying, <laughs> You've got the you've got the thermostat set at seventy out there in Burbank, and um, you know what? You're not even home, and I know you're not home, and I've been watching you, and I know your patterns. You're not home in the afternoons, Monday through Friday. Why don't you let me go up to seventy six? It's not going to hurt anything. The plants will be fine. I'll be back down to seventy by four thirty. Let it cool down a little before you get home. Right? Doesn't that sound great? Sounds good. But now, what if the nest says? Hey, you know, I put it in my home and it says, "Hey, John, you're a Democrat. You know, you're you're a you're a lefty liberal. Um, When you're home, you have me set at seventy. Isn't that kind of wasteful? Aren't you kind of not respecting the planet? How about if I go up to seventy-two and you wear a T-shirt, you know? Or if it's winter, put on a sweater. That's what Jimmy Carter said to do, right? And it starts pushing me, right? It's not just trying to serve me; it's trying to nudge me. Now, does that does that bother you, JV, or does that sound like, well, you know, I kind of had it coming? I think it kind of bothers me, but I'm not sure. I haven't. Why I have, does it bother you? Why does it bother you if it if it nudges me? It uses my own values, right? Which I, you know, I didn't I didn't say to my thermostat, I'm a liberal, but the thermostat was talking to the answering machine. The answering machine was talking to my phone, and they figured it out. Well, let me ask this: Can I override it? Can I say no? You will go back to seventy because I'm still too warm. Now, that is an exercise of free will, right? Yes. And, so, and the loop in gray matters is responsible. You still have free will. You can act. But, but, but that still leaves open the question of will you, <laughs> right? And, and, again, are you actually better off having a thermostat that gives you grief, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, okay, if the thermostat controlled you, I don't think we want that. That's right. straight up 1984 Orwellian, right? Right. But I'm, I'm trying to deal with, I mean, the title of the book is the name of the company in the book that creates this assistive technology for dementia patients. So gray matters is, is a specific proper noun, but it's also, it's also dealing with kind of these gray areas, right? I, you know, like, we talk about a technology that makes us nervous, but I like that technology as a, as a plot device if it also has real value, right? right. If, it, mm-hmm. if it challenges you in ways that are productive, um, and in the same way Grey Matters has villains, it, it has a bunch of villains, but all of the villains think they're doing something good, 
right? They're helping you or they're helping society. I think those villains are more interesting than straight-up evil conspiratorial, you know, forces at work that want terrible things. Um, I think it's more compelling when the villains and, and the, the thermostat, um, uh, they're doing things that might upset you, but they think they're doing good. Now, as you were writing these writing the book and, and including these ideas and you obviously had to sit down and kind of project and, and bring these ideas to uh, a bit of a fruition in some fashion. Uh, did you start to scare yourself? You know, I, I got more scared the more I revised the novel. When, when I first wrote it, uh, you heard me, I was inspired by the Sarah Palin's candidacy. Yeah. And I was feeling satirical and I was trying to poke fun at my own political party. Um, and I, I, the first editor I worked with said, you've you got to decide here. I mean, do you have a sci-fi book about ideas and about human nature? Or do you have a political satire? And, you know, she, she was good, right? She didn't tell me which one I should do. She just said, you've got to choose. And I, I chose, I, chose the, 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 I think, the deeper questions about technology and human nature. Um, and, you know, the politics is still there, but, but the satirical part, uh, diminished, and as the satire went away, the book became in some ways more serious. I still think it's very funny. I know people laugh when they read a lot of it, but it's it's not funny, haha, anymore. So I, I got a little more spooked the less the book became kind of a laugh riot, and the more it became kind of a meditation on where are we going with technology? What do we want? Um, if we want, again, back to the main tech in the book, if we want technology that helps people with dementia stay steady on their path, how much freedom are we willing to give up? Right? If, if you are just predictable, have you lost some of your humanity, some of your ability to render judgments? Like earlier in the program, we were talking about you want politicians who will challenge you and surprise you and, and show exercise independent judgment. Well, the technology in gray matters yeah, it makes that impossible. How important is science fiction to our culture? And I don't just mean pop culture. I mean our actual our civilization. I mean, it, sometimes in, on one hand, it can be a... Uh, a basically a uh, prophet it can give us prophecy on what's to come and other hand other cases it can be a warning of what's to come but how important is it do you think i think it's tremendously important um and uh, you you've got listeners out there who are creative people and uh um, I was just on a program the other night, and someone asked for advice on writing. Here's my simplest advice if you want to write sci-fi. Write short stories. <laughs> <laughs> writing a novel is a pain in the butt. Um, but, but the power of sci-fi short stories, I think, is great, because you can just take the kernel of an idea and just kind of work it out a little bit and, and share it with people and get them thinking, uh, you know, whether it's time travel or um, in a case like this, kind of just budding technology in our society, where would it go in five years and 10 years? Um, if you have a novel, you can, you can obviously spin out much bigger ideas, but I think sci-fi is really valuable. As you say, it can be a prophecy, but I, I like to think of it as usually a combination of a wish and a warning. Right, The Handmaid's Tale, 1984, those are straight-up warnings. Yeah. Right? Margaret Atwood and, and George Orwell, they see things in society today, and they say, I don't think you see clearly where these things could lead. Or what would happen in Atwood's case, she took things that already existed and just put them all together in one uh, 
one country, you know, the Gilead uh, government, it, nothing they did, as she always emphasizes this, hadn't already been done. As horrifying as they are, somebody had done it. Um, so that's a warning. But again, it's not a warning about something that is inconceivable. It's, it's about choices we're making and the cumulative effect. Um, I, I think people often misunderstand Orwell as a prophecy. But no, you, as you were saying before, it's really more of, hey, people, yeah. this is where we're going to ha- end up, right? With just a systematic misinformation, propaganda as, as our basic information diet. And it does feel prophetic. But I like to think of it more as just a continual warning, right? 1984 was written in 48 and was supposed to be looking forward to a date that's now well in our rearview mirror, right? Yep. Um, but it still feels very relevant and very scary. Gray Matters has the advantage of being more contemporary, so it's looking at things like hmm, foreign governments getting involved in elections, right? Or, or not governments, but even just foreign actors outside of government, um, or technology and uh, how it can uh, constrain us. Or a theme we haven't really touched on yet is the, uh, the Democratic uh, vice presidential candidate in the story absolutely denies science about dementia and puts forward... Um, theories about it that aren't really based on science, but are based on what he believes. He thinks dementia is uh, misdiagnosed. All it really is is seniors talking to future generations. We don't understand that because we don't have their wisdom. Um, And sometimes when he talks about this, he sounds absolutely crazy. Other times it sounds like he's telling us to be more future-oriented, right? Don't don't live for today, live for tomorrow. Um, And... uh, now that we've now we're in the era of COVID, I, I think, oh my gosh, there are Mahatma Goldens all around us, um, people who will tell us what our world is like and might be pretty untethered from the facts we have about uh, you know how the human body works and and how viruses work and so on. And in his case, it's a little different, but man, there's stuff in the novel that I I really did mean to sound kind of satirical, even though that I dampened that down. Now it just sounds kind of weird, like, okay, that, that's kind of happening now. Let's talk about this, uh, the technology that's included in the book that you write about that is designed and marketed in, in an effort to counter what is a real physical uh, malady, and we're talking about dementia or Alzheimer's, um, cause, because we start to get into a moral dilemma here. And I'll, let's talk about it first, and then let's talk about what the moral implications are. Sure. Um, and, you know, I've, I've done a couple dementia podcasts, uh, and I was anxious about doing that because Gray Matters uh, kind of, kind of uh, challenges dementia and says, you know, no, we can push it back, right? We can fight it off. We can create a, a – first, it's just kind of an app where you're linked up with a call center. And, the, you know, it, pe- people who are slipping into dementia often have lucid periods during the course of a day. And That's right, yeah. the technology takes advantage of that. Like when you're, when you're clear, uh, you can explain what you want to do that day, where you want to be, what your goals are, and then someone can be checking in with you. And using technology, they can tell if, you know, you're going to the wrong place, for instance, um, and just literally check in with you. One of the first texts is called a walker talk and it's sort of a gimmick. It's, it's really just a phone on a walker, and uh, you can connect with someone in the call center in uh, Gujarat, India. Um, and, uh, you know, these technologies uh, seem pretty harmless. Again, when they start getting connected to the loop, 
they become more AI-based, and there's less of a human element. So that gets a little spookier. Uh, that becomes the elder compass, um, and that gets implanted uh, behind your ear. So now we're not talking about kind of a gimmicky phone on your walker. Now we're talking about a little fish scale uh, slid in behind your ear. Um, and we're really talking about something that it, t- it turns out Elon Musk, here he comes again, right? He creates this company Neuralink, and this is exactly where they're trying to go, right? And they've even talked about dementia. I, I, I really didn't see this coming that fast. <laughs> Um, and they're saying, you know, if you put this chip in, connect it to your brain, at first they say it's, maybe it's a music app, right? You can listen to music in your head. And then they say, well, maybe it's something for disability, right? Maybe you've got a limb you can't move anymore. Well, we, we can kind of get those neurons doing their job and you start moving your arm. But, but then they say, well, maybe we can cure dementia. Um, and now I think, oh, boy, where is this going to stop? How powerful is this little fish scale behind your ear going to be? Well, gray matter is, is just focused on dementia, but even that is scary. At the top of the show, you said, well, maybe people could become what the, in the story is called glitches, right? Maybe, maybe you just could just go kind of haywire. And if it's if it's governing you, right, if it's, if it's moving you around, now it's the thermostat in your head telling you exactly what to do, right? That could go terribly wrong. Well, and then you'll add the whole idea of hacking or control. I mean, uh, if, if you're a horror film fan, this is probably a horrible analogy. But if you're a horror film fan, you know that Halloween 3, the third movie in the Halloween series of films, is about a children's mask that's sold that once the kids put it on on halloween somebody triggers control of those masks and, he, and, and this person controls all those people is there any uh thought do you have any thoughts uh as it relates to the ability once you have a device implanted in your brain or connected to your brain in some way that suddenly you have a mechanism by which somebody could hack in or even intentionally control you well again uh I love that you're referencing Halloween 3. Not just, not just Halloween, not the franchise. No, <laughs> Halloween 3. You're, you're putting your markers down culturally. I, I respect that. Um, but, but we don't have to go to the children's mask. I mean, haven't you worried about this with your car? Sure, yeah. Right? You've got mm-hmm. the tech in your car. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm not even talking about a self-driving car necessarily. Um, but we should worry about things getting hacked, and this is actually a concern about uh, autonomous vehicles is, you know, how secure are they, right? And it doesn't take a genius to figure out uh, how you could uh, cause that to go awry. If we go back to the 2016 election, uh, a common misunderstanding is uh, people talk about how Russia from the outset was, was picking a winner in that election. Uh, towards the end, they, they, they absolutely uh, thought, you know, who knows what we could pull off. But initially, it was more, something much more common, which we, the United States has done, other countries have done, which is just trying to delegitimize and disrupt an election, right? Just, just cause uh, consternation, chaos, confusion. Um, now, it's, it's one thing to try to do that with an election, right? That involves candidates and ideologies and electoral processes. If we're talking about traffic on a freeway, it's not that complicated. That, turn the car to the left to see what happens. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's right. not a metaphor any longer, right? You, we're, we're not steering JV a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left. No, we're just steering his car 
literally to the left and to the right. And here's the bad news. There are other cars to the left and the right of yours. So uh, the metaphor is pretty apt uh, when you come back to people and you're talking about implants and people. I absolutely worry about uh, when tech becomes embedded in us, um, how that could uh, steer us into the proverbial ditch. It's not that different than our phone, but it, there is a difference between having something in your pocket and having something in a little pocket behind your ear. I, there's been a lot of discussion recently, particularly as uh, people talk about the coronavirus vaccine that is being developed. And much of this is conspiracy theory talk, but the concepts and the fears are legitimate. Uh, you know, the idea of implanting a chip is probably going to be something very seriously discussed in not too many years to come um, for a lot of reasons. It's not, it's not the same kind of tech that we're talking about right now as it relates to gray matters, but it is still a piece of technology that, that could be implanted for a host of reasons. Uh, these are things that people are afraid of. Well, yeah, and, you know, I, I, I get asked, you know, are, can we stop the advance of technology, right? Is this, is this, and is this novel and novels like it, is it kind of a waste of time because we're going to become more and more dependent on technology? Um, I, I think there's two answers to that. One, going back to chips and implants, you can't stop it. It is absolutely the case that uh, we're implanting ourselves already. My, my oldest brother uh, ha has in his heart something that is critical to keeping his uh, quality of life within normal parameters, right? And God, God bless the folks right. who invented that. Uh, God right. bless the doctors who got that into him. Mm -hmm. And it's no easy thing, right? It's still kind of a miracle that we can do this with you know, pacemakers and so on. But it's certainly not going to stop there. And we have all kinds of things, right, that regulate insulin and so on. Um, so that's just going to keep happening. But there is still always going to be a question with this technological uh, development, which is, okay, but are we as a society making informed choices? So, yes, we're going to keep getting more. We're going to get closer and closer to the Borg, right? That's just going to happen, people. Your phone is getting, you know, slowly it's getting closer to your body, right? Um, and, you know, it's, it's only a matter of time until we start implanting more things in us. But, but how are we regulating that? How are we making decisions and saying what, where there are limits, right? We really can make choices, and we do this with technology. This is happening right now with nuclear technology. It's happening with fracking, right? People are making choices, different choices in different parts of America or different parts of the world, for that matter, but we're making conscious choices. Now, in other cases, we're not making conscious choices. The technology is just running amok. Um, sometimes it you know, runs really quickly in a great direction, and we have an amazing thing. Other times, it just explodes, uh, right? And we have all kinds of problems that we didn't foresee because we didn't think seriously about where technology was going. So gray matters actually has a plot problem in that you, you notice that their devices move from a phone on a walker to a little nano chip slipped behind your ear. Now, hold right. on. Doesn't the Food and Drug Administration get involved uh, before you can put something behind the ear? How, how, you know, what's the time scale of this novel? And, uh, uh, you know, I, I make no comment on the Trump administration other than to say it's pretty plausible that in the Trump administration you could get something through the FDA pretty fast if you knew the right people and did the right things. I'm curious, so, and I don't mean to be political about this, but when it comes to a device 
implanted behind your ear. I suppose it's the intention of the device that would determine whether or not the FDA had to be involved. Let's say Google developed, you know, they have Google glasses. They've got all sorts of devices that you can right. wear or use uh, as as some type of assisted augmented reality. Um, if they come up with a little uh, device that you can just pop behind your ear that somehow connects to the neurons in your brain, uh, would that necessarily be uh, have to be approved by the FDA? Well, this is exactly how I dance around that in gray matters. It's uh, it's question of ju- it's question of who's sitting in the seat that makes the judgment, right? Right, right. I mean, there's rules, and then there's interpretations of rules, and there's courts and so on. But mm, it's a question of who's sitting where, sitting at the FDA, sitting in the court, and so on. Uh, I have an I have a character from Australia who needs to become a U.S. citizen a little too quickly for the novel, and I I, I worried about that until again. 2016, and just a couple little rewrites, two sentences here and there, and it was like, yeah, no, we let him in. Sure, he's great. He's a genius. Now he's an American citizen. Now, no problem. You've got people. <laughs> you've got people um, in, in our real in, in real society, like Elon Musk, who is frequently talking about very advanced technological ideas, but at the same time, he's offering a lot of warnings, particularly as it relates to AI and uh, some of these other concepts. And there have been others. Uh, Stephen Hawking was one that also warned about progression in AI. And a lot of people, because of these types of warnings, believe that advancement in technology will ultimately be our destruction. Is, in your opinion, technological advancement necessarily apocalyptic? No, not necessarily. But I, you know, I have someone very close to me in my own life, my, my Uncle Ray, my, my father's brother, um, who also wrote about democracy for a long and distinguished career. And one of the last things he and I talked about was this very concern that he had, that that this will be our undoing, that, you know, human, you know, we talk about ideas and ideology and war, right, how, how you know, we, we go to war because our convictions are too strong about something. Um, you know, one definition of war is when one country overestimates its strength, right? These are human frailties, right? But these are manageable, Right, you know, uh, they're tragic uh, when when they lead to terrible consequences, but they're manageable. But then you add a nuclear weapon, yeah. Right, when you add technology that completely changes the scale of destruction, now it's not just about human frailty and and judgment; it's about technology. And so I I think Ray is was right to be concerned. And AI obviously is. The artificial intelligence is, is one of the latest manifestations of technology that could suddenly scale up in a way that, that's startling and potentially disastrous. Um, but I, it's not necessarily apocalyptic. And again, when we look at how civilization has advanced and what we're capable of, you know, even something as mundane as a skyscraper, right? Some of these technologies we now just say, oh, well, that's just engineering. Well, that's technology, right? It's incredible these things we can build and do um, that we take for granted, you know, modern medicine and so on. The fact that we can fight this pandemic at such a rapid speed, right? Just, you know, looking at its, its genome and so on, it's incredible what we can do thanks to science and technology. But yeah, things could go awry. Uh, in Gray Matters, I, I try rewriting the plot a little bit again by trying to get us to think that AI isn't necessarily something created by a person or a company or a government. It could be something that changes about the very fabric of our information network, maybe in a decentralized way. So that's just meant to be kind of an original riff on AI and where it could go. 
Um, but there's lots of scenarios, right? You know, J.D., you and I, we don't know where it's going to go, but what we can do is, beyond reality, is we can imagine different ways. And if we can see those different scenarios, we can start to think, okay, what is under our control? What can we do to make sure we're headed more down that road and less down that road? Where can people find your book? It's out already, right? Absolutely. Uh, You can get it at Amazon and finer places where books are sold. You can also go to johngastel.com. You can see Grey Matters, the novel I have coming out in October, Dungeon Party, about fantasy role-playing gamers and how that affects their lives, Um, or my nonfiction. My nonfiction is more optimistic. Uh, The book I published (laughs) in January with Katie Knobloch is Hope for Democracy, which talks about some actually really promising democratic reforms. I know that sounds crazy, and we thought about putting a question mark after the title, but really, there are some reasons, some reasons, to be more hopeful. Um, So, yeah, you can find Gray Matters anywhere you look for books. Um, The audio book is going to be available very soon. We just finished uh, recording it uh, with Victor Bavine. The voice of the Mueller Report at Audible is the voice of Gray Matters. Um, And that's going to come out very soon once Audible gets a chance to check it. Um, But otherwise, all the you know, the e-version and print versions of the book are ready to go. John, talk a little bit about the locations that you reference in the book. I know there's some significance to them. Sure. I I lived in Seattle for a a good while, and that's where the company Gray Matters is located. But um, Charlie Sanders, the, the big data kind of programming genius out of the University of Michigan, rival of Penn State, what was I thinking? Hmm. Um, uh, he's, his family grew up in Detroit, and that's the biggest contrast in the novel is the Detroit economy versus the Seattle economy and you know, what you expect about the world, what, how you think the world is, is supposed to work. Charlie's um, dad has trouble with this, this GM he works for. It's not the right GM, right? They're not building anything anyone can use. They're just, they're just talking all the time, right, and making sort of electronic nonsense. Um, and then the other location is uh, is uh, in Gujarat, India, where the, the call center is located, and really most of the human labor in the company uh, is, is organized uh, to connect with clients and uh, help them. Um, well, initially help them, but maybe start to nudge them a little in the same way that thermostat did when we were talking earlier about how technology can maybe nudge you around. If there are humans involved, then maybe the humans want to nudge you around. So, so we, we look at the world through the eyes of Seattle, which has kind of a techno-utopianism, through the eyes of Detroit, which is very skeptical about uh, the, the transformation of the economy, and through the eyes of, of India, which is very concerned about the United States as a country and the impact that its population has on the world. And um, so different people in different places have different ways of seeing the world, and that causes them to have different kind of objectives, different things they want out of their technology. Would people who read Gray Matters uh, leave concerned for our future, excited about the future, or recognizing they have to walk a very uh, difficult tightrope tightrope to make this a uh, a positive outcome as it it relates to technology? You know, the main thing I want people to feel uh, when they finish Gray Matters is is to feel the desire to slow down and think, Mm -hmm. what do I want? How, what choice would I make? If there was a technology that I could implant in a parent or a grandparent um, and have them kind of freeze in this way, 
take away some of their, you know, kind of their unpredictability and their creativity, but, but make them more stable and predictable. Would I want that for them? Um, in gray matter, some people do that against the will of the patient. Uh, they kind of fudge the consent uh, because they don't want the trouble, right, of, a, of a, an aging parent or grandparent uh, slipping into dementia. Um, and so there's ethical choices in there, um, and I want people to be reflecting on those. When it comes to Alzheimer's and dementia, I, I also there's a message in there about, well, what, what should you be fighting against and what should you be accepting, right? We, we rage against things that, that, that we don't want to see come into the world. But sometimes they're coming. And sometimes, you know, people we love are going to change in ways we don't want. And that's part of what the book is about, too. So it's, it's a question of, you know, what, what do you want to resist and what do you need to accept? Let's talk about some of those ethical issues. Um, you know, I, too, as many people have, uh, have experienced uh, – an older relative going through dementia. And it's a very, very sad for both uh, in an empathetic way, but also personally, as you know, you see somebody that you've known and loved your whole life start to forget who you are and not have share any of the memories that make you, um, you know, so close to begin with. So you've got a, a scenario here whereby if there's an option for someone to get some type of implanted device that either slows or reverses or changes the outcome of dementia um, as a as 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 a caretaker if you will of the patient i could see why i'd be very very tempted to make that decision for them and say yeah hell hell yeah put that in there let's get this thing taken care of uh, but is that the right thing to do uh, that's exactly see that's I'm glad uh, you put it that way, because that's what I want people to come away from the book doing, is wondering, is that the right thing to do? When would that be the right thing to do? Um, again, when I've had the chance to go on Alzheimer's-focused podcasts, one of the themes on those is uh, how you make decisions together, right? Ultimately, the patient makes the decisions about their own health. But in the context of dementia, right, it's tricky, because you start to get into these areas where, you know, the dementia patient may now start to have trouble making independent judgments. I, there was even a case that was uh, talked about on public radio recently where they did make the judgment together as a family, including the person who was suffering from dementia, but, but, but then that family member forgot that they had played a role and refused to believe that they had agreed to do something. So you're really struggling with making these decisions either on behalf of a loved one or with a loved one when their cognitive function starts to decline. So, yeah, gray matters is absolutely about those ethical choices you're making. Um, and uh, in the case of uh, the, the main character, Charlie Sanders, and his father, Barry, yes, Barry Sanders, right? <laughs> and that's a coincidence, right? He had that name before the football player became something, but he absolutely named his son after the Hall of Fame tight end. Yeah, I'm a Detroit Lions fan. What can I say? It's, <laughs> it's, it haunts me in a way uh, I, I can never express. But, um, no, uh, Charlie wants for his dad um, – Really, that, that, that's kind of normalcy and peace that he had uh, is losing. And it, his life is becoming dangerous, right? Even just going out for a walk in, in a rough neighborhood, um, if he doesn't really know where he's going um, and he's not that sharp about what he's seeing, he has some encounters that he's clearly not understanding where he is and what's happening around him. That's scary. And so Charlie worries about not just the sort of comfort of his dad, but the safety of his dad. So, yeah, it pushes you toward control 
wanting to control the patient. Um, and again, that can be the right decision, but as the technology gives you more and more control, you need to really think, okay, now where, where is the ethical line? And as you said earlier, okay, if it's giving you more and more control, is it really giving it to you or who else has control, right? And what if they're hacked? So there's all kinds of questions. When you take away the free will from one person, it's not always obvious who then takes the reins of that person's life. Well, you brought up uh, real-life tech that we're using, uh, significantly using, and successfully using today in uh, whether it's a pacemaker, whether it's an insulin pump. My, my nephew's a diabetic. He's got a, um, a pump that's connected to him. Uh, there are a lot of technological devices that we're using to improve quality of life. Is it only different? Is it only problematic when we start ta- tampering with the brain? No, but the brain is our our most sacred, right? Uh, you know, vital organ, right? And it's it's where we make our claim to humanity being something special and different, right? That we search the universe universe for signs of this particular kind of intelligence. And so, yeah, it's a little different than telling my heart how to beat or uh, telling my limbs uh, how to move. It's it's making decisions about who you are, right? And it's, it's getting closer to this ancient concept of the soul, right? Um, so I think you're right that things that connect to the brain should, should give us more pause. Um, but, you know, there's, there's some mundane technologies already in existence that are really like, like the early tech in gray matters, just forerunners of a chip behind your ear. Um, when I was on Coast to Coast the other night, a caller called in and said, you know, I have cognitive difficulties, and I use an app that is really helping me, you know, gather my thoughts, plan my day, and if I didn't have that, I would, I would be slipping. Now, this isn't dementia. There's all kinds of cognitive challenges sure. that people have, right? Yeah. But, you know, an app on your phone is absolutely where the tech kind of gets rolling. And, and when I asked him, you know, well, what if that app went inside your body? And he said, yeah, no, I, I'm going to draw the line there. Well, some people won't, right? Some people won't draw the line. They will say, well, that would be a lot more convenient. <laughs> so I, I, I'm hesitant to, to say this because it's a little silly, but, um, and I don't know if it's The Simpsons or if it's Futurama, one of those two cartoons, adult cartoons, has, you know, notoriously has this, these, this scene that appears occasionally where they have uh, famous people's heads in a, basically in a jar. Oh, that's Futurama. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So the, the brains are kept alive so those beings can, t- can interact still, but their bodies are unnecessary. Um, and that's another uh, concept that people have talked about. As long as you can keep the brain alive, the rest of the body really is irrelevant. Um, what, where does that fall in our ethical hierarchy? Well, that, that is not near future sci-fi. <laughs> that, that's a little beyond my reach. Um, but uh, I, let, let's take it this way. Let's take it as a metaphor. Um, Richard Nixon is one of the famous that's right. uh, heads in a jar that's in Futurama. Right. Um, and I think when you watch the show, part of why it's so funny is it really does feel like Nixon, right? <laughs> it has the mannerisms, the, the ideology, the personality, right? A little paranoid and so on. Yep. Um, and we think that's what makes Nixon Nixon. Uh, if I asked you, well, what did his hands look like? Or what was the way he would move his body, right? How did he occupy physical space? You might be a little hard-pressed, right? Maybe you'd remember his jowls, but yeah. um, 
No, it, it's the Nixon personality and the character and the motives that we think defines Nixon. So, in a, in a way, I, it was very well done, JV, because you really did make me come back to, well, what is the one thing that gray matters uh, in its advanced text potentially takes away is uh, any sort of character development. But it does freeze, if you will, your personality as, and your ideology as it exists right now. So, in a sense, Nixon in the first episode of Futurama where he appears and the last one, probably the same guy, right? So, um, it, didn't, it didn't make Nixon any less Nixon, but it, it did make it impossible for him to change and grow. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's, in some ways, a scarier thing, right? That you always want to believe that you could become better and smarter and better informed and make make new judgments in novel situations. And eh, robbing us of that is robbing us of a, a crucial part of our humanity, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. You have referenced Sarah Palin uh, a couple of times as being uh, one of the catalysts for uh, writing the book. Uh, there are other key characters in the book. You've mentioned a few of them. I'm just wondering what other influences, if you had to point to people who uh, you know are, are in the news every day, uh, if you could point to some of the inspiration or influences for your characters, you know, I'll, I'll put um, I'll put something in there that is isn't so much a person so much as a a, a, a kind of movement. Um, I uh, you know because I'm a lefty liberal and uh, I'm a Democrat, you might think, well, I'm a protester, right? I'd love to get out in the street and do protests, and I've done I've done my share of protests um, uh, back when the United States was. Uh, intervening uh, in Iraq, uh, not the most recent time, but quite a while ago, I was in graduate school, and I remember uh, having the chance, um, all we are saying is give multinational economic sanctions a chance. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, that's me, right? I can't even protest with a straight face. To right? para paraphrase John Lennon, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you're roughly paraphrased, right? Yeah. With, you know, a policy amendment. Right. Um, and so you can, you can tell, okay, well, I'm clearly not going to, you know, be the, the best frontline protester. Um, I'm always going to be cribbing little notes to myself. And um, so I couldn't help coming up with an idea uh, that may, may seems again seems very relevant right now, which is sometimes protests uh, get mixed up with violence, and nonviolent protest is is a very strong Gandhian tradition, but carried through all kinds of movements in the U.S. But as we're seeing right now with protests, sometimes you get agitators mixed in there. Sometimes there's clashes with the police, and things turn violent, right? And so, right. unfortunately, peaceful protest often gets tangled up with with violence, property damage, often. Um, and that's, that's not my style, so I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about getting involved in those situations. So there's a concept that appears in the book where um, Charlie Sanders, the main character, sees people. It turns out they're just everyday citizens who are installing street lamps, right? Uh, Charlie's dad, again, lives in a neighborhood in Detroit that is, the city doesn't take care of as well as it could, and so there's a lot of street lights that are out. Well, here's a couple local residents in the dead of night installing, basically replacing light bulbs, right? And if you think about it, that's straight up illegal, right? They've actually yeah. gotten the bulbs from the city, which is they're just sitting, you know, in a yard. So they have to, first of all, you know, scale a fence, get the light bulbs, and then, like little cat burglars, right, climb the pole and, and get the uh, light in there. Well, that's, that's 
technically a property property crime, right? And what they call it, and this fascinates Charlie, is they call it reverse vandalism. And the rules of the game, they say, are you have to be breaking the law. This has to be something you could absolutely be punished for, <laughs> but it has to be good. It has to be altruistic, right? In, in a sense, it's kind of reverse vandalism because maybe somebody shot off the streetlight just being a jerk, right? And, well, they're just screwing a new bulb back in. Um, and Charlie uh, tells his friends back at the company Gray Matters in Seattle about this, and, and they, you know, they have some creative applications of it, but one of them maybe wants to take it to a much bigger scale, and so I, my own experience, uh, I, I have a, um, an elementary school I've lived next to for years, and I noticed the basketball nets were terrible, and it, I had been writing Gray Matters for a while, and I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to try this out myself. And so for a few years there, I was replacing their nylon nets, but I was getting on a ladder with a pair of pliers, and I would try to do it surreptitiously. And I, I'm sure I'm trespassing. Right? You can't be fooling with the rim and, and putting up baskets, but that elementary school has had first-rate <laughs> nylon baskets from the local sporting goods store. And I, I like to think that a teacher was out there one day saying, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, that's reverse vandalism. So that's an example of uh, something that the characters in the book get kind of excited about that kind of came out of my own experience. Uh, there may not be an answer to this question, but I'm I'm – curious if there is the character charlie did, was there any particular uh, uh inspiration for that name well hey, the truth is it really was detroit lions fandom oh, okay. um, i i have a charlie sanders uh cup from when i went to one of my first lions games i grew up in san diego and my best friend explained to me that we had to have favorite teams, and I, you might have guessed I'm kind of a nerd, a little bit of an outsider kid, and so I didn't know about favorite teams. I didn't pick the San Diego Chargers and the San Diego Padres, much to my dad's horror. Um, no, Lance said we've got to have favorite teams, and so I liked cats. I loved cats. And so I became a Detroit Tigers and a Lions fan. So, yeah, there's some, there's some deep Detroit Lions jokes embedded in the book, but the name Charlie Sanders is a pretty straightforward one. They don't have a lot of players in the Hall of Fame, people, um, but that's one of them. I, uh, when I saw the name, I immediately uh, thought of uh, Flowers for Algernon. Wasn't the main character Charlie in that, in that oh, book? Oh, well and, done. Look at you with the cultural references. Yeah. Man, <laughs> see, I, I, I'm going to take credit for that. I'm going to say unconsciously, of course, that's what I was thinking, <laughs> but it, it took you to unlock that in my brain. Now, if it turns out we're both wrong, I'm going to look like an idiot, but I, I'm, I'm rolling the dice on this one. All right, we'll do it together. Um, let's talk about AI and politics a little bit more. We touched on it in the beginning. Uh, are we there? Are we at a point where AI in some fashion, and maybe it's Facebook, I mean, to, to use a cliche at this point, uh, but is AI affecting politics now? Oh, absolutely, it's affecting politics now. I mean, it's, it's artificial intelligence is really just a way of using information uh, more systematically, uh, making predictions and estimating probabilities and so on. Um, and, uh, yeah, political parties, candidates, organizations are using that, corporations are using that. And corporations are very interested in political outcomes because they can have a tremendous effect on the company. Uh, I mean, you you live through the telephone company, uh, you know, getting broken up right into a bunch of smaller companies, right? Yeah, that was right. just. We live in a democracy. We can make laws about all kinds of things. And so, if you're an economic entity that may have some relationship to the government, whether you want one or not, you need to care about politics, right? You, we keep mentioning Elon Musk. I mean. 
so much of his business, whether it's space or solar, has a lot to do with what government policies are on those issues. So people who are interested in technology uh, and whose companies are depend on technology are absolutely leveraging AI, and why not leverage it in politics, right? Um, there's a funny expression, which, which is not a new one, but I think is a helpful way of thinking a little differently about technology and politics, which is, I, I can't remember who to attribute this to, but the the sort of half-serious joke was that it's only a matter of time until we elect a piece of software. Mm. And, right, it sounds funny, right? Like MS-DOS is right. standing, you know, <laughs> representative in California's 13th district. Um, anything, you know, and anything. And Clippy is going to be the, uh, you know, chief of staff. Anything but um, Windows. Right. Anything but Windows. Are you trying to write a letter? <laughs> um, no, seriously, but here's, here's where the joke is, is, is serious. Well, a lot of us think about our elected representatives not as um, someone who will stand as a trustee for us and make judgments, right, based on information we don't have access to, not because it's not a publicly available, because we just don't have time, right? We want them to go off and be geniuses and, and do good things. No, that's fine. But most of us really think of what we sometimes call the delegate model. We send you as a delegate to go represent our values, which we already expressed on Election Day, and how dare you change your mind on anything, we will destroy you in the next primary. Um, well, the software says, okay, folks, that's what you want. I'm just going to keep you up to date on what I'm voting on, and I'm going to ask you how I should be voting, right? And it's, you, know, you might think it's a stupid, you know, simple poll, right, where I say, well, House Bill 23 is coming. Here's a 20-word summary, yes or no. Right? But the software could be more cagey than that. It could yeah. say, well, House Bill 20 has an interesting values trade-off inherent. In and, in fact, here's three amendments that are possible that I think are going to come up on the floor. Now what do you think? Right? Do you need to read a little bit more? Maybe if you read a little bit more, the software gives more weight to your vote. And now it's, it's going to cast a vote based on, actually, if you think about it, kind of a more intimate relationship with the people in that district, right? So... Is that artificial intelligence, right? Um, is that uh, technology taking a turn for the worse? So that's why this joke, you know, sooner or later we're going to elect software uh, to public office. Well, obviously we're going to elect a person, but that person is in no way prohibited from using software in exactly that way. I, I write about this in some of my own nonfiction when I write about a tongue-in-cheek term, the democracy machine. Um, but the idea is to use all kinds of uh, digital technology to improve the relationship between citizens and their government, uh, to make it a more democratic uh, and, and robust relationship. So some of that involves AI. And again, that could be for the good, but we need to do it with our eyes open. We need to be making choices together, deliberating on these questions. Again, that's what Gray Matters is about. It uses the case of dementia and Alzheimer's to kind of touch on something that for folks like you and I is, is very personal, to, to help us think about how technology could affect our lives. But really, it, it's a much bigger question, as you said at the outset of the show, about the relationship between what it means to be human and how we want technology in our lives and in our world. John, is, I'm curious, as, as an author, is it easier sometimes to make points like the points we've been discussing tonight through the narrative of a story versus a nonfiction, you know, fact you know, factual presentation of information? Yes and no. Um, 
I, 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 I have to say, learning how to write fiction, learning how to you know, carry through a narrative, develop characters and so on, has actually, I, I like to think, helped my nonfiction. So the book that I wrote, The Hope for Democracy, that came out in January, is more of a narrative nonfiction style. Instead of me as an academic saying, I conducted research, the National Science Foundation gave me stacks of money, and here's what the data set uh, that I was able to collect looks like, right? Here's some graphs. Here's some more graphs. Have you seen a graph? Here's another. Um, <laughs> instead, uh, the, it starts by talking about one of the people who was chosen at random to serve on this body. Um, so it, indulge me for a second. The state of Oregon uh, when they have a ballot measure, like, you know, people vote on laws in a lot of parts of the country. Um, in Oregon, when that happens, there's a commission now that, that can collect a random sample. That random sample can get a chance to study that issue for a whole week, hearing from people, you know, pro and con, and some neutral experts. And then they write a one-page analysis in plain English that tells you, hey, here are some things you need to know just about the basic facts of this issue, and here's what we think are the best arguments for passing this law, or the best arguments uh, also against it. You get all that in one sheet of paper written by your fellow citizens, right? That's a neat intervention, and that's really what the, the centerpiece of that book. But we tell the story through the eyes of one of the very first people to have done that, right, who got chosen at random, and what a weird thing it was to, to be in this, you know, in this situation where people are listening and, and they want more information and they're, they're asking follow-up questions. And it's like, oh, my gosh, is this what politics could be like? And then it also tells the story of, you know, the people who created it, right, and, and puts it in a historical context, pulling in the John Adams and, and how he thought about ancient Athens. So these narrative threads from, from ancient history to American history to the present day and individual people is how we tell the story of something that could have been very dry and academic, right? And not even any footnotes. There's all the references are all tucked away in little essays in the back. Um, well, I don't think that my co-author Katie Noblock and I would have written the book that way, Hope for Democracy, if I hadn't been learning how to write fiction. In fact, we worked with an editor who traditionally works with fiction authors, and I remember at one point he talked about an academic theory we were using called cultural cognition, um, developed by a, a colleague, Dan Kahan at Yale. And uh, he said, okay, Dan Kahan, all right, do we need to know about Dan or do we need to know about cultural cognition? I said, well, you really need to know about cultural cognition. He said, all right, well, that's the character. He said, does this character play an important part in your story? You talk about it here for a few paragraphs. Where does it reappear? Right? Are you going to tell us to care about cultural cognition and then you're just going to drop it? Right? It would be like a play where a character shows up for five minutes of the play and then you never see them again. Right. So that's a different way of thinking about nonfiction, thinking about characters and you know, plot arcs and so on. And uh, so, yes, writing fiction is, is, is fun and you can get your ideas out there by telling a story. But as, as the best you know, nonfiction uh, narrative authors uh, show you, you can really tell a story about the driest nonfiction topic. Um, I mean, Malcolm Gladwell's made a career off it. We, um, we're going to run out of time here. I, I want to ask one more question about um, gray matters, and then I want to change subjects just for a minute. But through your research, through your consideration of these ideas and these thoughts and this information that you've gathered to put together gray matters, you must have a sense of what you think the future is going to look, look like, say, five years, say, 20 years. What do you think we have in store? I, I am actually very concerned that right now we don't have the, the kind of the political will and the infrastructure 
to handle the biggest, most complex problems facing our society. Um, and I don't think anybody else has the solution. Um, I think some democracies, and that's with a lowercase d, and I'm using the term loosely, some democracies are doing better than others. Um, but we're seeing all over the world we're having problems with, um, you know, we're electing governments that aren't up to the task. And what are the alternatives? Well, China thinks they're an alternative, right? They're meritocracy, so-called. Um, but you can see that China has all kinds of problems, I mean, just unimaginable pollution and so on. So Singapore says, well, we've got the solution. We've got this sort of kind of little bit democratic at times, but you know, otherwise we've got a, you know, well, they're a city-state, so don't get me started. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not going to cut it. And so the the point is that we we really need to raise our game in terms of how we govern ourselves, right? What is democracy at the end of the day? It's self-rule, right? It's that individuals come together to decide how they will uh, design their world. And even if you're libertarian, you still want there to be laws, even if they're just laws that protect your freedom, right? But you need to have a government. You need to have a way of putting in place a good government that's up to the task. And as those problems become more and more complex, and, and interlocking in ways that are even hard to, to predict, you need a smarter and smarter government, and that also means a closer relationship between the government and the people. So that's, that's where I've been putting my energy when I, I made that offhand remark about the democracy machine. That's really where my nonfiction is focusing right now. In fact, you, you mentioned Call of Duty. I, I myself am a Red Dead Redemption fan because I'd, <laughs> I'd rather ride my horse across the Old West than be caught in a uh, high-caliber gunfight. Um, but uh, I actually think we have a lot to learn from video games, and video games do some really clever things with incentives to make people do sometimes altruistic behaviors that they wouldn't otherwise. And so I, I think we can design ways of having citizens interact with each other and interact with their government that don't control them, but rather instead give them better opportunities, right, to learn, to inform each other, and to ultimately make decisions about, again, self-rule, self how to govern ourselves. We need to get smarter about that because the world is only going to get more complex. All right, John, I've got to ask you, the book you've got coming out, I, I don't know how far along you're, you're in the process of writing it. If you're just waiting for it to be printed, I don't know where you are. But this game is described... Uh, as uh, a discussion about fantasy role-playing games. and uh, how... This is Dungeon Party coming I out need, in October. Yeah. I need to know what this book is about because I may or may not have played some of these games. Uh, well, uh, you know, <clears throat> it's not any particular game you've played. The game in the book Dungeon Party is called Dungeon Lords, and there are no trademark infringements. Um, but it coincidentally, you probably know that Dungeons & Dragons is actually bigger than it's ever been. Uh, the player base has grown, and, and weirdly, COVID has actually spurred even more growth in these kinds of games because they give people a way to hang out together when That's they're right. not physically co-present. And it doesn't require any special technological interface. I mean, you can just play these games just with a Zoom, of all things, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but Dungeon Party it com absolutely comes out in October. The same voice of Grey Matters, uh, uh, Victor Bavine, who, who does a lot of books for R.A. Salvatore, a, a popular fantasy writer, um, he's going to be the voice of Dungeon Party. He's about to record it, I think, even maybe next week. Um, but the ebook is already available for pre-orders and so on. It's the same publisher. It's an independent uh, sci-fi fantasy uh, publisher, John Hunt Publishing, their imprint, Cosmic Egg. Uh, they wanted both novels. You know, I work on these books for, you know, 10 years, and then all of a sudden 
uh, all of a sudden I'm a novelist, and it's terrifying. Um, but uh, Dungeon Party is super fun, and oh my gosh, I worked so hard to get some early endorsements. And Ed Greenwood, the creator of The Forgotten Realms, people who play D&D know who that is, he absolutely loved it. And what I appreciated is that he said, Dungeon Party is, yes, uh, gamers are going to love it because it's about gaming culture and how playing these fantasy games uh, changes us. But he said, really, the book is for all these people who love us and do not understand why we're staying up at 2 in the morning to play Call of Duty, or, you know, why these games are important to us. So Dungeon Party actually tells the story of why immersing yourself in a game uh, can actually be a positive thing. It's not always. Dungeon Party explores potentially negative effects, too. But uh, being a part of that gaming community, gaming culture can can really be transformative for people. And in, in fact, in a very serious way, sometimes even games help you process trauma. Um, so that's what Dungeon Party is about. And uh, it's, it's a fun book. Uh, it comes out on Halloween, of all things. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, the website is johngastel.com. Gastel is G-A-S-T-I-L.com. Uh, and once again, I know you said uh, it before, but where can people get these books? Oh, oh, they can go to JohnGastel.com, and there's links to you know everything. I would just say Amazon, but some people don't like Amazon, yeah. so you can you can get it through uh, indie uh, books and so on. JohnGastel.com has the various links for those things, but anywhere finer books are sold. That's terrific, John. This is a really fun discussion. I appreciate your time tonight. I look forward to um, Dungeon Party coming out as well, because uh, like I said, that was kind of. M- good chunk of my time has been spent doing those things. Um, but I hope you'll agree to come back sometime. You know, JV, uh, I, I, maybe we got ourselves a date right around Halloween. We can talk about the power of fantasy role-playing games. What does that sound? That sounds absolutely perfect. I'll make sure Eddie gets in touch with you about that. Cause that's ideal. It's a deal. Hey, uh, have a great program uh, for your, uh, I know you've got a psychic coming. Um, I'm sure you can anticipate what they're going to say. No, that's their <laughs> that's job. That's their that's job. Right. <laughs> but you'll have a great show. Um, and thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real treat. Thank you. Again, it's johngastel.com. The book is Gray Matters. The book coming out in October is called Dungeon Party. John has a bunch of nonfiction work as well, and you can see all that on his website. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.